I just want to put another thing out to you. And like I said, I was, I was up in Michigan the last couple of days um, leading initiatives and team building things for, um, hey guys, for high schoolers. And it was, I love doing that. It's in my element. Um, I get to hang out with uh, people that are a little bit more at my intellectual level. And um, we get to play crazy games and kind of look stupid. But at the end, we get to talk about teamwork and what it, what it took to be a team, what it took to accomplish a goal. Um, and they get to talk about their team of the highs and the lows, right? So they're, they're describing this team that they've been placed in of people that they probably don't even know until that time. Um, and, and debriefing, it's, we call it debriefing. It's talking about the experience. It's, how that experience has impacted you, how that experience is going to change you. It's much like the gospel. When the gospel impacts you, it should change you, and it should change you in a way that sends you out um, in a new direction than you are currently going. Um, and I was thinking about our family of Missio Dei as maybe as a team a little bit, right? That we've been placed in this community, that we have been commissioned to go out and spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the greater Lincoln Way area, and self, um, we have a huge responsibility. And so the question, as I was preparing this message this morning that was kind of bouncing around in my head, is for you, as attenders of Missio Day, when you're on the street and someone walks up to you and says, hey, I've heard about Missio Day, I know you go there, what's that church like? Tell me about that church. What would you say? And I, I actually want responses here, so hit me. So what would you say if someone walked up to you and said, what's Missio Day all about? Community? Community-based. Sorry, I'll repeat exactly what you say. What else? Hopefully no one took offense to that, because none of us are perfect. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, definitely not. What else? Eric. Cool. Bible-based and kid-focused. Beautiful. Intimate? Intimate? Good. Okay, cool. Very nice. A couple more. Kyle. Prayerful. prayerful. Beautiful. Actually, we'll, we'll end on that one because I, I do, would like to pray before we really dig into to Philadelphia. So let's join me as we pray. Father God, I am thankful that this morning I have the, the, the blessing and the huge responsibility to be up here this morning. God, I pray that I would faithfully preach the word as you have placed it on my heart. God, and I pray that you would be readying and preparing those hearts that need to hear your word. Wherever they're at, Lord, we know that you meet us there. So God, this morning, I pray that we come into this place expectant to see you move. God, that we're not sitting here because it's Sunday and this is just what we do. But God, even now, I pray that we expect to meet you here, that we expect to walk out those doors changed because of what the gospel has for us, for what you have for us. 
So Lord, this morning, I pray that we'd be open to your moving. And God, even that we'd be open for you to come in and wreck our lives where it needs to be wrecked, that it might be rebuilt by you, for you, so that we can serve you. We love you, Father God, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we've, we've talked a little bit about Monsieur Day, and I want you to just kind of store that in your memory banks, because now we're going to shift gears a little bit to Philadelphia. But even before we do that, um, as I was preparing for this, and as, as I was reading through, uh, if you want to, actually open your Bibles to Revelation 3, um, chapter, or verse 7. As I was preparing for this and, and reading through verses 7 to 13, the Church of Philadelphia and what they're all about and what this letter to them might mean for us today, uh, I, I had to go back to Revelation 1 and read all the way through it again. And so we've, we've looked at, what, five churches up until this point. We've looked at Ephesus, a church that was probably pretty big and really thriving and alive, but they had lost their first love, right? We've looked at Smyrna, where they were encouraged to hold fast and prepare for what they were about to suffer. They were in hostile territory. And that letter was, was gearing them up for what they were going to endure. We've heard about Pergamum, how they, they didn't guard their back door. They let Satan gain a foothold of false teaching. We moved into Thyatira, where they've given in to the teachings of Jezebel, who has led them into sexual immorality. They've compromised what they should be about. In Sardis, we've heard about the spiritually dead that need to wake up and remember what they at first fell in love with, what they originally knew to be true. And so now we come to Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is unique up until this point for a few different reasons. Um, first, Philadelphia itself, the town, uh, the city, I guess, was, was founded um, by one of two brothers. Not exactly sure which one. Either Eumenes or his brother Attilus II. Um, and the name Philadelphia comes from Attilus II's nickname, Philadelphius, which means brother lover. Um, Attilus II was extraordinarily loyal to his older brother. Um, and because of that loyalty, that's where the city got its name. And I'm sure all of you know Philadelphia in the U.S., the city of brotherly love. It's pretty safe to say, though, that this Philadelphia didn't get its name because of the Christian love there. In fact, when the city was founded, it was founded as a Greek outpost. It was meant to spread Hellenism uh, to, to the outreaches of where it was at. And it was meant to become kind of a center for Greek culture and language. And in that, it did very well. Uh, within a few years of the city kind of coming about, um, the, the surrounding areas, uh, a lot of them had converted to speaking Greek. And so it was very good at outreach, right? Uh, as for the church in Philadelphia specifically, not a ton is known about it. It's really only mentioned in the Bible here in Revelation. Uh, and a lot of it is kind of speculation as to how the church came about. It was probably founded during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So Paul probably had a, a pretty major hand in, in getting this start church going. And a few years after Revelation was written, uh, 
uh, early church leader, Ignatius, passed through Philadelphia on his way to Rome where he was martyred. Uh, but when he got to Rome before he was martyred, he, he sent a letter of encouragement and instruction to Philadelphia. So this, this church um, was influential. It stood for a very long time before it disappeared somewhere in the 14th century. So we're looking at hundreds of years that this, this church was around. And what we see in this letter to Philadelphia is encouragement from Christ. Along with Smyrna, Philadelphia is, they are the two only churches that receive no rebuke in Revelation. There is no, but this I have against you language to this church. And that's not to say that the church was perfect. It's not to say that everyone there just kind of showed up and put on their Christian face and, hey, we're just that really good church that does our really good thing on Sunday morning. In fact, I'm sure that this church dealt with a lot of the issues that we deal with in church today. I'm sure they dealt with gossip. I'm sure they dealt with resentment, anger, lust, jealousy, envy. They were not perfect, much like Monsieur Day is not perfect. In fact, I'd even go as far to say that we are far from perfect if we are held on our own account. Every church is flawed. Every church has issues. And the church has issues because it's made up of imperfect, sinful people. But in Philadelphia, we see a church that knows how to love. We see a church that knows what love is. And as I was going through this, I, I kind of wondered and reflected on it, the name of Philadelphia. As this church got started, maybe that was an encouragement to them. Right? As Christians love each other, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that they are to love others. They're in a city named after brotherly love. To be an example of that brotherly love, taking that to heart and living it out. This church was in love with Jesus Christ. They followed after him in a way that showed that they were just sold out to what he is about and what he had done for them already and what he was doing in their midst. midst. They were commissioned to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to an area that probably wasn't always very receptive to it. In fact, they probably got turned down quite a lot maybe even dealt with hostility and resentment and harassment. But I'm, I'm pretty sure with this church, and this is purely my speculation, but it's my feeling with this small church in Philadelphia that they were probably a pretty missional church. They weren't very much a church that just felt the need to come and sit and hear a nice message and then go back about their lives. They were grounded in Christ working hard to spread the gospel to this hostile area, and they were faithful. I'm going to read through this, and if you'll join me in that, starting at verse 7 in chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. 
I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. (laughs) Right? Every time I read through that, can't help but be changed by it a little bit. We're hearing about a church whose letter from Christ was nothing but encouragement to hold fast to what they were doing. <laughs> and I, I really wish we knew more of what they were doing, because obviously they were doing something right. We're going to walk through this kind of verse by verse, starting at verse 7. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. In the previous churches, Jesus has always introduced himself. He's always um, given some sort of attributes about him. And in the previous writings, it's come from Revelation 1, 12 to 17. So it's, it's been attributes that he's already kind of laid out in, Re- in Revelation. Things like the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, or the first and the last who died and came to life, or him who has a sharp two-edged sword. In this introduction, though, we see something a little different. We see something that's a little more distinctly Old Testament. Jesus refers to himself as the Holy One. In the Old Testament, we see this many times to describe God, who, being holy, is utterly separate from sin. And his character is absolutely pure and unblemished. In the New Testament, Holy One is used as a messianic reference, that the Holy One, Jesus Christ, is clearly laid out as the Messiah. Using this title now, Christ is again clearly identifying him as God, as full deity. And it makes clear to us, Jesus being the Holy One, that he is holy and pure and without blemish and utterly separated from sin. The crazy thing with that is that that same Jesus, the one who came and lived a perfect life on this earth, 
who dealt with the same temptations that we do, who dealt with even greater temptations. I don't know of any of us that has spent 40 days in the desert being tempted by Satan himself. And he held up to it. And he did it for us. He died for us. He came down from heaven for us. And I feel like with that, we could stop right there and go and be excited about that and want to spread that to the Mokina, New Lenox, Frankfurt, wherever we live area, right? But we don't. And we'll get into that later, but I don't know what holds us back from that. You know, I look at my kids, when they get excited about something, they like are gonna burst, right? You watch any kid on Christmas morning, you think their head's going to explode if you make them wait another 10 seconds to open a present. And we have the greatest present. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we just kind of take it for granted, don't we? And it kind of sucks that we do that. But we, here we have Jesus painting again this very clear picture of who he is, what he's done for us, and our response to that should be nothing short of pure joy. 1 Peter 1, 15-16 says this, He who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Earlier I said Philadelphia wasn't perfect people. They were sinful, they screwed up, they made mistakes, just like we do today. But notice in that verse in 1 Peter, it's not us who makes ourselves holy, is it? It's only through Christ. It's only because he is holy and he has called us to be holy. It's only through that call to be holy that we are made holy. It's not because we choose to be holy, because we're really bad at that. We succumb to temptation. We succumb to the sin that so easily penetrates our life. But the reality is we have a God who wants us to be in his presence. And remember him being holy and utterly separated from sin. Any sin in our life, he can't even, he can't even take it. But when viewed through the lens of Christ and what he has done for us, we look beautiful. Jesus also refers to himself as the true one. with a capital T. I think today, so often in our lives, we confuse truth with what we want or our opinion of something or how we think it should be. And we substitute capital T truth with fill in the blank. Whatever is easiest for us in that moment or right for us in that moment or feels good for us in that moment. But here, Jesus is, is establishing himself as the only truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? John 14, 6. He's pretty clear right there. It's hard to refute when Jesus says, I am the way. The truth. Truth here, I think, as Jesus is, is talking about this, 
Truth is genuine. It's authentic. It's real. It's hard to fake truth. In fact, it's impossible. But when you know truth, when you have that in your heart, you also can't help but live that out with joy and excitement. And I think in in culture today, in society today, we have perverted that word truth. We tell half-truths or straight-up lies because it's more convenient for us again. Again, it, it just seems to come back to us. And here we have the opportunity to witness real truth, authentic truth in Jesus Christ. I am the Holy One and the True One. He opens the door for us. And it's, it's up to us to respond to that. Jesus continues in his introduction, He who holds the key of David. Again, his language here just reaffirms that it is only through him and his authority that we have the ability to enter heaven. No other way. Jesus is the one who controls access to heaven. And finally, Jesus is the one who opens and no one can shut, and the one who shuts and no one can open. Who is more powerful than Christ? Isaiah 43.13, I act, and who can reverse it? Jesus is declaring his sovereign control over his church. As I was looking at this introduction and and preparing for this morning, I really feel like I could probably talk about verse 7 all morning. (laughs) Because he lays out such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And when you consider his audience of Philadelphia, they probably have already such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. What's your picture of who Jesus is? Is Jesus just this person who dispenses what you want when you want it? Or helps you when things get hard? Are you limiting Jesus in your view of who he is? Because here, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I see a beautiful picture of a powerful Christ who wants community and communion with us. Sinners. Jesus moves on. Verse 8, I know your works. Again, this imperfect church, Jesus knows their works. They understand what Jesus' death and resurrection meant, and they understood how to give grace as it has first been given to them. They probably weren't people who engaged in petty bickering very often, or at least very long. My guess is that as they would get into it, they would remember what Jesus has done for them and be able then to show grace to whoever they were having a disagreement or argument with. 
Jesus has set before them an open door which no one can shut. This is a promise made to the church by Jesus. He'll provide an opportunity for them to freely share the gospel, to go out into the world and proclaim what Jesus has done and is doing. It's really hard to do that if you can't even be civil with each other in your own church. <laughs> and here, Philadelphia is given a huge opportunity of service in their area. This area that was, again, probably pretty hostile to the message of the gospel. But believers in Philadelphia could take this promise to heart and unashamedly share the gospel wherever they go. And again, my mind wanders back to what's holding us back. Why aren't we bursting out of these doors every Sunday just completely jacked about who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives and like a kid on Christmas morning just bursting to share that with someone? What's holding us back? In our daily life, do we really want the responsibility of that open door? Do we really want the responsibility to have that opportunity of service placed in front of us? Or do we just want to show up on a Sunday morning, hear a nice message, go home, get back to our lives, maybe sometime throughout the week carve out some time for a missional community group, maybe crack the Bible open three, four times a week, but not really changing our lifestyle and allowing Christ to impact us where we are at. So I ask, how is the message of the gospel impacting our hearts here at Missio Day Church? To make a change in our lives, or is it impacting us at all? Um, Orlando Costas, Paul often quoted this a while ago, and it, it sits in my head almost every day. If you are not currently being transformed by the gospel, you are disqualified for ministry. That's, that's a big deal. How are you transformed by the gospel? You're in community. You're sharing what Christ is doing in your life with people that you don't know. You're taking that step of faith, even when it's scary or hard or seems really uncomfortable. You're in the Word daily. You're meditating on the Word. You have it sitting in your heart. That's how you allow the gospel to transform you. You're open to the moving of the Spirit. One of the things that I really love about the Church of Philadelphia is as Jesus goes on, he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That sentence reminds me so much of Missio Dei Church. <laughs> A church that has but little power in the standards of today's world, especially in the North American church where kind of, this is my opinion, unless you have 200 people in regular attendance, 200 members on your roll, unless you have a state-of-the-art sound system with a state-of-the-art worship band to go with it, a, ch a children's ministry that just blows everything off the map, 
you're not really considered an effective church. It's, it's about numbers. It's about filling a worship center on a Sunday morning. It's about how many chairs you have to put out. And unless you're doing that, you're not a successful church, right? But here in Philadelphia, we see a church that has but little power. Meaning, they, they didn't have a mega worship center, and they probably didn't have a huge member log that they had to go through. In fact, they were probably quite small. Through commentary, my best assessment is that they were made up of lower class, underprivileged, and poor folks in society. This wasn't the cream of the crop. But despite the size and the socioeconomic status of the church, they had great power in Christ because they held fast to his teaching. They have kept his word and not denied his name. Some of the activities of the church, as I was thinking through this and praying through this, could have looked similar to some of the activities of our church. They could have worked to beautify their city. They could have worked to intentionally help those who had less than them, to serve at soup kitchens, to organize food drives. They could have done all that and more. Who knows? But chances are they were a church that did out of a response to what Christ has done. This is a good reminder for us today. We might not be huge here at Missio Day Church. If you ask Mokina about Missio Day, they may not know who we are. But I feel like we're a church that holds fast to the gospel. We're a church that holds fast to the truth of the word of, of God that's revealed through us through his word, through the Spirit, and through the truth of Jesus Christ on a cross in an empty tomb. But I still ask, I'm that person that, that, that just always has to push it, right? What more could it look like for us? What could our impact truly look like if we lived our lives as the people in Philadelphia did? In Philadelphia, people were being redeemed. Lives were being transformed and the gospel of Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. And my thought is, all of that was probably celebrated within that congregation. And that's, for me, what I would love to see us push towards. The celebration of what Christ, is, God, the Spirit is doing in our midst. The celebration that we have served and fed people who don't have regular meals. The celebration of that time that you've shared who, Jenny, talking to the person at work, that you've been, had the opportunity to share what Missio Day is about. Those times that we've taken that step and said, you know, Lord, by faith, I'm going to do this. And coming back here and sharing that with the family. That celebration is so important because it's clear here that as they potentially celebrated together, Christ celebrated with them. Christ is encouraging them to continue what they're doing. 
So what's holding us back? In my humble opinion, I believe that most of us is, have pretty much fully brought in, bought into the American brand of I deserve. We believe in our current culture that people are entitled to certain things, right? Luxuries, rights, the age of entitlement. We have to have digital TV. We have to have the fastest, newest computer to keep up with the fastest, newest internet connections. We have all those things that we need in our life to stay connected, to do what we feel like we have to be doing. We have these things that we deserve because we've worked hard, because we've gone to church for a year consistently. We feel like we deserve these things when we do good things, but the reality is what we deserve is hell and nothing more. It is only through the saving grace of Jesus Christ that we have any hope of escaping hell. And our response to that hope should be that we serve him. I wonder what cultural and creature comforts the people in Philadelphia put off in order to serve Christ in a way that reflected what he has done in their lives. In a way that helped them to hold fast to the scriptures that they may have set before them an open door which no one can close. They knew that was all that mattered. To receive Christ, to be changed by the gospel, and to share that with others. We hear some amazing promises from Jesus. The people, the very people who persecuted the Christians in Philadelphia would bow at their feet. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. When I first read through that and thought, how am I going to present that? I was a bit thrown off. Because <laughs> here I'm looking at this church who is humble, who loves others well, and now Jesus is saying, you know what? All those people that persecute you, that give you a hard time, I'm going to make them bow at your feet. And I didn't really understand the point of that at first. And as I dug through some commentary, I learned that like the church of Smyrna, Philadelphia, was probably a pretty heavily persecuted church. Jesus is saying that those who would show absolute submission and defeat by bowing down to them, those are the same people that are persecuting them. So by holding fast to the gospel, the believers in Philadelphia would receive a huge reward. They would see their enemies become their brothers. They would see those people that persecuted them, that taunted them, that they gave them a hard time, that gave them a cold shoulder, become people that they can put their arm around and call brother in Christ. 
How cool is that? Because of their steadfastness to the gospel. They have a chance to see the Spirit do what only the Spirit can do. And that is completely change a person's heart. The really cool thing is they get to be a part of it. They get to witness it. And they get to see it happen firsthand. Salvation through Christ. It was probably the one thing that they thought about the most. Whether for what they, he had done for them already or what he was doing for those even that were persecuting them in that moment. And I think in that promise, in that reward that, that Christ promises to them, we see a pretty amazing picture of what evangelism for us should look like. You know, you get turned away once or twice or someone doesn't return a call and all of a sudden you're like, Psh, you know what, they're not even worth my time. Or someone responds to you in a negative way and you're like, you know what, I'm not even going to deal with that. I don't have the time for it. Or someone cuts you off on the road and clearly they are going to hell because they are inconsiderate of my driving ability right now. We write people off so fast. But here, we see a church that persevered. A church that held fast to the word and didn't write people off. And even through that persecution, they now get the reward of seeing them know and come to Christ. We also see another amazing promise that because of their faithfulness, they will be kept from the hour of judgment. It's through their patient endurance. Patient endurance. Those two words don't often hit each other in my vocabulary. When's the last time that you can truly think that you patiently endured something? And this isn't like waiting for a Yahoo webpage to load, right? This isn't like running late to work. Patient endurance probably lasted years for the people in Philadelphia. This wasn't a quick, oh, that kind of was a hard moment and now we're through it. This was something that would grind on their life daily. That they would have to endure every moment in their day. Not just a slight inconvenience. And I know in my life when something is typically hard, my end goal is just to get through it as fast as possible. I don't like to sit in it. I don't like to have to deal with it. I just want to get it done, whether it's resolved or I can ignore it or sweep it under the rug until it pops up later. I don't care what the solution is in that moment. I just want it to be done. But to look at our lives as an opportunity to endure for Christ puts a little bit of a different spin on that. When we look at those opportunities of hard times of grind, of difficulty in our lives as an opportunity to show love to other people, as an opportunity to patiently endure and hold fast to what we already know to be true 
as opposed to succumbing to the flesh, as opposed to falling into our sinful desires and ways, life looks completely different then. We're not just here to do stuff for the church, even if it's good stuff, to make money, to give in the offering. That's not why we're here. To plan another event, even if it's really cool like snowboarding, not why we're here. And it's not that those things are bad, but we're here to endure this sin-riddled world. To hold fast to his teachings so that no one can take our crown. He says it right here, for I am coming soon. And until that time, we must hold fast to the truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This patient endurance and holding fast, when, when I think of those two things, the word that comes to my mind is genuine. It's hard to endure with patience and not be authentic. It's hard to hold fast to something without truly believing in that something. I would guess that if we were able to talk to the Christians in Philadelphia, they would have been one of those people that you just want to sit down and spend the whole day with even though you just met them. That they would have been very genuine, that they would have been people who cared, not because they felt compelled to or guilted into caring for other people, but because they genuinely cared for those other people because they knew that they were created by God for his glory and redeemed through Jesus Christ and are able to, to enjoy the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They saw people as vessels to glorify God. And out of that, they cared for people. There were people who were genuine in their faith to Christ, not doing anything out of compulsion, but out of their really, very real response to what Christ had done in their lives. So either individually or as Miss O'Day, how is our genuineness going for us? When's the last time you invited someone into your house simply because you wanted to hear their story? Or the last time that you dropped a check in the offering basket without thinking of those couple of things that you could have used that money for instead of giving first to God? Whatever it is hanging between you and Christ, we all deal with them. And to have genuine love for each other is to have a deep-seated de desire to know God through Christ, who died for you and me, and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and to do acts of kindness out of a recognition that we are all sinners. It needs of God, in need of God's grace and, and mercy. And that we would approach our relationships as fellow sinners in need of God's grace and, and mercy. As it has been so freely given to us, we are then also able to share that. For those with a genuine faith, Christ promises a few things in the close of this letter. I'm going to read it one more time. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. A pillar in the temple of God. To those that hold fast, to those who genuinely live what the gospel calls us to live, we have security. We have an eternal spot in the kingdom of our eternal God. He will also write the name of God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And finally, he will write on us his new name. We will be labeled permanently. A label that no one can wash away. We will be labeled as his. No longer floundering through this world that is so engulfed in sin and wants and selfish desire. Rather, we will be with him forever. Forsaking all else that we might only desire to worship the living and eternal God. That is what true joy is. But first we must endure. The reality is we're placed here now for a very specific point and purpose. I can say with absolute confidence that God has a plan for every one of us in this room right now. I can say with absolute confidence that every single one of us are not perfect and need to repent and experience true repentance, not just, hey, I'm real sorry, God. Now I'm going to go back to do what I'm doing. We in this room need to experience a repentance that is a real turning away from and running the other direction towards God, turning away from our desires, turning away from that which so easily ensnares us so that we can run the race that is marked out before us. And we must have a faith that shows fruit. We must have a faith that out of a response to what God has given us, we want to show that to other people. And this morning, we're going to prepare to come to the table. I want you to, to take some time this morning and do some self-examination. What is holding you back from living as a member of the Church of Philadelphia lived? What is it that so easily entangles you? What is it that is just driving between you and what Christ calls us to? The whole Church of Philadelphia was found to be in favor with God. Not because they were perfect, because they knew what true dependence on God was and the true importance of grace, mercy, and repentance. So take some time, still your heart, and confess to God your sins and experience true repentance of the turning from that sin that it may be dead in your life 
We know that God promises forgiveness. We know that Jesus has already paid the price. Now we really need to live into that. On the night, Jesus sat in a room with his disciples and he picked up a loaf of bread and he said, this, this is my body which is broken for you. Whenever you eat of this, remember me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he filled it saying, this represents my blood, a new covenant. Whenever you drink of this, remember me. Would those who are serving please come forward? This is a time to experience grace. This table is open for all who have accepted Christ in their heart and professed with their mouth that he is their Lord and Savior. Take some time. If you need to pray with someone, get up and pray with them. If you need to get on your knees, on your face, do what you have to do. And when you're ready, come, for all things have been prepared.